We will turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Yes, we are continuing in a bit of a detour from our study together through the Gospel of Matthew. We'll come back to that eventually, but uh, perhaps for the next uh, few weeks or so, we'll look at some other passages. So Genesis 2. A few years ago, some of you may remember this, uh, if you followed religious news very much, but um, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the largest Presbyterian body in the U.S., uh, ruptured over um, the ordination of gay clergy who were living in homosexual relationships. And, of course, out of that big divide, other denominations, at least one other denomination, sprang forth. Last month, I noticed in the news, uh, actually, it's been, I've been noticing it for a while. You've, if you've listened to the news, you've probably heard, over the last few months, the United, Pres- the United uh, Methodist Church also has been having similar discussions in the church over uh, discussions about homosexuality and gay marriage. And now the United Methodist Church has found that there's no way forward but to split the denomination between the conservatives and the, the liberals or the ones who hold the, to uh, affirming homosexuality. And then just a few days ago, I <clears throat> heard that the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England, um, apologized over the division, what he called the division and hurt um, over the church's stance um, as it reaffirmed that sex was only for heterosexual married couples. And uh, he wanted to convey his, his sorrow about that. Um, to people who had been hurt. You, you hear headlines like this. You follow the news. You see this happening again and again and again among in various religious bodies. And I think as a casual observer looking at it from the outside, most people seeing all of this, they start to wonder or start to, maybe they just assume that the issue of homosexuality is an ambiguous issue in the Bible. It's not very clear. And so some Christians believe one way and some Christians believe another. And, you know, it's just that's the way that it's going to be because the Bible, God just didn't speak to it very clearly. Where, Where I think the real problem is actually deeper than any discussion about gay marriage, any discussion about homosexuality, By and large, the vast majority of these churches, the problem is much deeper, and it goes back a lot further in time than the discussions over homosexuality. The problems really go back generations to the discussion about the authority of the Bible. Is the Bible the Word of God? 
And is the Bible authoritative? Is the Bible without error in everything that it speaks to? Or, okay, that's one position. Or is the Bible given by grace from God, but, you know, it's really a a human product, and those human beings were products of their culture, and so they they brought in their own ideas to the scriptures, and and it, it comes down to this, friends, it comes down to what you believe about the Bible. A lot of this is rooted in a battle that was lost long before any discussions about homosexuality or gay marriage. The real problem goes back, I guess, to the beginning of of time, when in the very Garden of Eden, after God had revealed His Word to Adam and Eve, this serpent came in and he said, what, has God really said that? It's, it's the beginning of a questioning of the revelation that comes from God, the, the validity of it, the, the integrity of it, the truthfulness of it. And, uh, and so I think that many of these denominations, and I, I guess hearing the, the news lately, just all of this going on and on and on, just made me feel like, you know, this is something that we need to talk about as a church uh, on a Lord's Day morning, and I've dealt with it at time from time to time in the in the afternoon services, but but to be able to bring it up here on a Lord's Day morning, I thought was was pretty significant. The real battle, as I said, among most of those um, churches that are being divided right now over the homosexuality issue, most of them the battle was lost long ago. In fact, I, I mentioned at the beginning the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church United States of America, and that back in 1936, I believe, um, it was the what were called back then the fundamentalists of that denomination. That is, those who believe that the Bible, the integrity of the Bible, the the inspiration and the authority of the Bible was so fundamental to the Christian faith that you can't deny it without perverting the gospel, going on a, on, a, on a whole different path. Those fundamentalists were at such um, uh, an end to try to bring the PCUSA to an affirmation of the truth of God's Word. The, the, that, that larger denomination was so, in, the liberalism there was so entrenched that um, groups like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church left um, the PCUSA, to establish churches on the grounds that God's Word is the truth. And if God said it, we're going to believe it. And that settles it. It's settled no matter whether we believe it or not. But, but uh, for us, in terms of what, where we're going, that, that just settles it. Now, of course, that doesn't um, alleviate the, the need for hard work to discern what God actually said. And that's always been a challenge for Christian people. But I will just say this, as I, as I listen to the news and I hear things like this, I want you to realize this too, that while it seems on the surface with so many churches being divided over, the, that the issue is ambiguous, I want to tell you 
that the issue is not nearly so ambiguous when you are committed to believing that God's Word is true. If you commit yourself that you believe everything that God actually said, when you believe that no prophecy of the Scripture is from anyone's private interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you believe that, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And that settles the issues, and I think it, it has settled the issues for, for many people men, uh, among Christian people long before we ever got to where we are today. So, so don't look at it and say, oh, the issue is fuzzy, it's up in the air, Christians disagree. No, what Christians really disagree about is whether the Bible is really the Word of God. And that's what you have to get settled in your heart and mind. And I don't know how to, I mean, I know I'm speaking to the choir in the sense that most of you are convinced. I don't know how you got convinced exactly. I don't know how to convince you exactly, except to open the book up and to beg you to read it and to pray that God will open your eyes and show you. Uh, This book is the Word of God. Once you're convinced of that on a fundamental level, then, then it brings great clarity, not, um, not a lack of it. Christians have affirmed the Bible's teaching on gender and marriage and sexuality now for 2,000 years. It really has been the last century or so that uh, the idea has become predominant among confessing or professing Christian churches that the Bible is maybe a human product rather than a divine book. And it's the fruit of that that we're seeing now in so many ways, this just being one of them. It is not God who's changed over the course of the last 2,000 years. God hasn't changed his mind on sexuality but it's humans who begin to look at God's Word, have begun to look at God's Word in a different way. Some of you know the name Rosaria Butterfield. She was a former lesbian activist. By the mercies of God, she came to Christ, and her life has been really transformed. But looking back on her life before Christ, she said, quote, My greatest problem was not my homosexuality but my pride. It is that verse in James chapter 4 where the Lord says that He resists the proud, but to the humble He gives mercy and grace. That was the opening of the door of the gospel into her heart. She says that her greatest sin, and and this is true, this is true of anybody uh, who is resistant to the Word on this point, Um, that our greatest sin is not what lies on the surface, for her, the homosexuality. She said, my greatest sin was my insistence on defining good and evil for myself. Pride. My insistence, my unwillingness to yield to what God said, and my identification of myself with my own sin. The root of that sin was pride. 
Christopher Yuan lived many years of his life in very godless um, lifestyles, got involved um, in a homosexual in homosexual lifestyles, ended up because of a number of things going on in his life, ended up in jail. But in jail, he came across the Bible and began to read it. And here's his testimony. He says, as I continued to read the Bible, it was clear that God loved me unconditionally. But I'd also come across some passages that seemed to condemn the core of who I thought I was, my homosexuality. Being a new believer and not having any Bible training, I wanted to get somebody else's opinion. So several months earlier, I had gone to the chaplain and opened up to him. I'd shared with him my past, living as a gay man and now living with HIV. I had been nervous about how the chaplain would respond. Fortunately, he was very gracious. He listened to me with compassion. Then he said something that totally surprised me. Actually, the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. He walked over to a bookshelf. Here's a book that explains this view in more detail. He handed me the book, and I took it in the hope of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I sat in the chapel's small courtyard to read, with the chaplain's book in one hand and my Bible in the other. I had every reason in the world to accept the book's assertion that God was okay with my homosexuality and gay identity. But if I could be a, if excuse me if I could be a Christian and have a steady relationship with a man that would be just about ideal. I'd go to church with him and maybe even start a family. It would be such a relief if all this could be reconciled. But as I started reading the book and reading the Bible passages it referred to, God's spirit convicted me that the assertions from the book were a distortion of God's truth. Reading his word I couldn't deny his unmistakable condemnations of homosexual sex. I wasn't even able to get through the first chapter of that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. After that, I turned to the Bible alone and went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for biblical justification for homosexuality. I couldn't find any. I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and live as a homosexual, by allowing my feelings and sexual passions to dictate who I was, or abandon homosexuality by liberating myself from my feelings and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think his testimony is not a whole lot different from what's happening all over the country today, is that Churches and people are intent um, to affirm others um, regardless of what the Word of God seems to say when it says something that seems uncomfortable. The truth is, I believe this, if you go to the Bible looking to justify your own thinking and your own feelings, guess what? you're probably going to find justification for it. And that's true for all of us, regardless of what our own predisposition towards sin is. 
It takes a deep humility that comes only from God for us to place ourselves underneath the Word rather than standing over the Word to judge the Word or to force the Word into our thinking. Matthew Vines was a former, is a a former um, evangelical Christian who's now become an activist for um, homosexual lifestyles and within what he calls uh, committed gay relationships. But Matthew Vines, in defending that position, admits this. He says, quote, I didn't know, talking about his growing up, he says, I didn't know what to think about gay marriage. But the gay people I'd met at school seemed normal enough. And criticizing them for not trying to be straight didn't make sense. And so with that starting point, he went to the scriptures, studied them for a number of months, and lo and behold, came away with a sense of justification for um, gay lifestyle. And and I want to warn us again all about this, and again, not about this one particular sin, but about all of our sins, that if we go to the Bible with a desire to find justification in it for the way that we want to think or, or act or feel, then we'll probably find it. We'll say to ourselves as a starting point, okay, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem true. Or this doesn't make sense to me. And the hardest thing in the, do, in the world to do is to not trust our experience over the Word of God. The hardest thing in the world to do is not to look at someone who's in a homosexual relationship who seems so good and nice and kind and gracious. The hardest thing in the world to do is to look at that and to say, and, and not to say, well, that can't be bad. It doesn't seem bad. And you know, the same is true, let's move it out of this realm and talk about anything else. Looking at your Mormon neighbor, who seems like the greatest neighbor, very kind, brought, baked you a cake when you first moved in and brought it over to your house. He, you know, he's just the very nice kind of person. You say, how can that be wrong? Or you look at somebody who's, who's just, an, take an unbeliever, somebody who just completely is irreligious, And yet they're just such a nice person. And so many people will say, well, how could God possibly condemn them just for not believing in Jesus? The truth is, we know what the Bible says, right? All have what? Sin and come short of the glory of God. We know that even the outwardly good things that some people do, apart from Christ, in, in defense of their own autonomy rather than submission to the Lord Jesus. Even those good things, outwardly good things, are as filthy rags because they're done in, um, in opposition to 
God's desire to glorify his son, the whole purpose for which everything in the entire universe was made. And so, I encourage you, I admonish you, to let God's words sit over your thinking and feeling. To humble yourself before the Lord. And I'll just tell you this. When you have done that, it will destroy you and it will be the beginning of your life. Your old self dies and your new self is born again. And it's a life like no other. So I'd like to do two things this morning. I'd like to do a brief, and this will be brief, because we've done it more in depth other times, but a brief survey about what the Bible says about homosexuality, um, gay, lesbian, transgender um, issues. And then secondly, to do an inventory of Satan's lies, because Satan is in the business of giving you an alternative narrative. You know what a narrative is, right? It's a story. And stories can be made up. Once upon a time, there was a princess who lived in a faraway land. Or stories can be true. And there's a true story. It's called his story, history. There's a true story that God is writing. And it had a beginning, which is hugely important. The first book of our Bible, right? It has a middle and it has an end. And it has conflict and drama. But there's every time you have a true story, okay, there's going to be a false narrative that's being pushed as well. Here's another story in which to locate yourself and everything that's going on around you. Here's, here's another narrative in which to think about that. Another paradigm in which to understand the world around you. So there's a, there's a false story as well. And Satan lies about every single part of God's true story. He lies about the beginning, he lies about the middle, he lies about the end. Alright? And we're going to look at those. So first... In a rather summary fashion, but I want to put before you, once again, what the Bible says. And if you're going to figure out what the Bible says about marriage, what the Bible says about sexuality, what the Bible says about men and women and all of that, gender, you need to go to one of the most foundational books of the entire, the foundational book, I guess you would say, of the entire Bible, and that is the very first one, the one that you're looking at, the book of Genesis. If you get Genesis wrong... Boy, you get so much else wrong. Isn't that true? Don't you agree? That's true. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, <clears throat> number 18. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God, Jehovah God, said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. A helper who fits him in every way. Fits him bodily. Fits him in a soulish way. His counterpart. His complement. That's a good way to say it, isn't it? His complement. 
God said, let us make, um, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So interesting that what God does after saying, let's make man's complement as he you know, he talks about all of the animals and bringing them before the man, and and Adam gives them names, and he gives names, verse 22, all the livestock and the birds of the heavens to every beast of the field. And what's the whole purpose of this? Well, I can't help but believe that the purpose of this, part of it is, is to begin to drive Adam toward uh, seeing how uh, creatures fit together and what their purpose is in the world and, and where where he lacks someone to fit him. And it says, and, uh, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. How did God do that? I don't know. <laughs> but it is interesting. I, I find it very interesting that he used a rib from, from Adam. I guess he could have created Eve out of the dust of the ground, but he formed her from him, not from his head to rule over him or from his feet to be trampled underfoot, but from his rib, from his side, as a complementary companion in life. And man said... The man said, this is the first love song in all the Bible, right here. You see how the ESV sort of puts it into, it's like poetry. He just broke forth into poetry. So guys, we just had Valentine's Day. You write some poetry for your wife. (laughs) Here's Adam's poetry. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She will be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Now, look at verse 24. After Adam has been, after, after Adam has brought to him this, this um, custom made creature for to complement him, to fit him in every way. Then the narrative stops and we have a a narrator's insertion here. Look at verse 24. Here's a comment on the story. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And the key word that I want you to notice is the very first word of the verse. You might underline it, circle it, put a little star by it, whatever you want. Because that's an important word. It's the word therefore. Therefore. What's the, what does that word do? It shows a connection. It shows, here's what we do now, verse 24. And the reason for what we do now is rooted in what God Himself did in the beginning. Therefore, we do this now. In other words, 
what God did at the very beginning was paradigmatic. It was a paradigm. It was a, it was a template for every other marriage that should follow. What is that template? It is one man and one woman. Now, you continue to read the Bible, and there's all kinds of perversions of that. There's more than one wife, and there's things that go on with uh, husbands trampling over their wives and wives rebelling against their husbands. There are all kinds of muckety-muck. But in the beginning, this is the way God made. And therefore, this is the way it should be. That's the connection that we need to see. So before we go to any passages in the Old Testament, and we, you know, people start arguing about whether that's applicable or not, or before we come to you know, these New Testament texts and people are saying, well, what does that word really mean? I want to say, if you don't start at the right place in the very beginning, and what God said that that implied for all time, then you've, you've gotten off on the wrong foot to start. So, we start with Genesis. And Jesus himself recognized um, and exemplified for us the importance of rooting our present-day theology of marriage and relationships in the paradigmatic relationship that God made at the very beginning. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him about the lawfulness of divorce. Is it okay to put away one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, therefore, Jesus quotes this very first I'm highlighting for you. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're they're together. God did this. God brought them together. God said, hold fast. And so, uh, or this is what Moses wrote under the inspiration of God based on what God did. So Jesus makes the conclusion, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When Jesus was questioned about marriage, what did he do? He goes back to Genesis as the root. He sees Genesis. He sees what God did there as paradigmatic, as a template, as a pattern for everything that should follow. And Paul himself does the same in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, talking about the, um, the role of women in congregational life, in church life, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not per- permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And here's his reasoning. He goes back again to the paradigm that was set up in the beginning. And this takes a little more extrapolation, but, but here's where he's going to go as the foundation for his argument that Adam was formed first and then Eve. Okay, And so, in other words, all of that to say, the New Testament writer, Jesus himself, his apostles, all did this. They go back to this and they see what God did in the garden as a pattern, as a template for, for what marriage ought to look like today and, and how we ought to... Uh, to live within those relationships. So that's the foundation, all right? Number one, the foundation is Genesis chapter 2. Secondly, there are prohibitions in the Scriptures against um, homosexual relationships. For example, I'll just go quickly through these. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 says that if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed abomination. They will surely be put to death. 
This is not different. This is not a different penalty than what would happen if a couple were together, a heteros, a man and a woman committing adultery. Okay? This is not singled out differently from that, but it is clearly um, viewed as wrong in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 22 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. The Lord says that cross-dressing, the confusion of genders, is a confusion of what God fundamentally did at the beginning. This is not to say that, that sometimes people don't have con- feelings of confusion. But we need to learn to think rightly about our feelings of confusion. And the way to think rightly is to let our feelings and our thinking be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust that what God said is actually good. And it is. It's good. It was created in the beginning as a way to glorify God. And I, that's a whole other topic but also for human flourishing, for human good, for your good. God made it this way. Now, let's. Um, some people challenge these, um, these prohibitions by bringing up the comment that, well, there are a lot of Old Testament laws that what? That we don't keep, which makes it sound like we're all here just sort of randomly picking and choosing what we like out of the Old Testament to force other people to do and what we don't like. That's what it sounds like to a lot of people. The truth actually is, and this is underappreciated by most Christians, the truth actually is that not one word of all the law of God, of all the Old Testament, is obsolete. Not one word. Matthew chapter 5, remember that Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. He said, not one jot, not one little part of a letter will pass away until all is fulfilled. Then he said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these laws will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So we're not to think that, well, that's sort of not applicable for us. Of course, the truth is that some of those laws in the Old Testament find their in Christ. They, they find a fullness in Him. They find a three-dimensionality in Him where they were only two-dimensional pictures in the Old Testament. Of course, that's true. The ceremonies of the Old Testament pointed to the one who would be the ultimate Lamb of God, the ritual cleanliness of the Old Testament. And, and the New Testament helps point the way. And that's a whole other topic to get into except, except to say this. Most people, when they make the argument, well, the Old Testament said it, and there's some things in the Old Testament that we don't do exactly the same. So, almost as if that like dismisses it all. No, our, we should assume that if God said it, right, it's, it's valid for us. Now, we need to figure out how, if, if in any way, it's, it's broadened and fulfilled in, in Christ, in the coming of Christ. But the burden is upon us, 
or the person who says, oh, let's just forget it. No, no, God said it, and Christ said none of it passes away, right? So you need to grapple with it. Now, that brings us to the New Testament then, and um, so several passages. One, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Or, here's some specifics, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for adulterers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and for whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. This again, is is an example of lawlessness. Why? Because it's against the law. And this is the New Testament saying this, right? This this is an enduring law that God gave in the Old Testament that the New Testament writers themselves are saying are are applicable for us in the same way, or or else we are lawless. We are are, um, lawless and disobedient, as the text says. Um, And don't get thrown off by... Men who practice homosexuality as if it only, you know, it's only talking to men. Of course, the reference, I think, is broader to, to, to any kind of homosexual practices in much the same way as when the Old Testament says that a man must not divorce his wife and the New Testament writers come along and say, and, and it applies to the women too, not to divorce her husband without cause, right? So, so the, the principle works um, reciprocally. I think that's the right way, the right term. I'm not sure. It works both ways, right? Um, here's another text. Um, in fact, let's turn to this last one. Or, or there's two more, but let's turn to this one. This is where I'll, I'll have you stay the rest of the sermon. That's 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a key passage, so if you can look at it, that would be really great. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. And I'll put it up on the screen for now. We'll come back to it, though. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right, now I'm isolating on the idea of the, what the Bible says about homosexuality. Let's not forget that the Bible's condemning a whole lot of things, right? right? So God forbid that we, any of us, go on in our sin, whatever our sin is. Um, but one of the things that is condemned is homosexuality. In fact, the, the phrase translated in our ESV, I, probably a little, maybe unfortunate, it just sort of lumps two Greek words together into one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. There are two terms there that seem to refer to both the, um, the, the active and the passive um, partners in a, in a homosexual relationship. The Bible says this is, um, this is lawlessness, this is unrighteousness, not pleasing to God any more than any of the rest of this is. And of course, then one last verse that um, So we've moved from the foundation, which is in Genesis, to the prohibitions, which span from the Old Testament to the New. Not one obscure passage buried somewhere that we're all arguing about, but God keeps saying this again and again and again and again, right? And, and then we come finally to the condemnation 
um, or the judgment that God pronounces against men for rejecting uh, his revelation. And that is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 28. God revealed, let me back up. The Bible says here that God has revealed himself to all men, that he's put a revelation, given a revelation of himself to all, but universally men have rejected what they know to be true. And for that reason, all men are accountable to God. All men are going to be guilty. Nobody has any excuse. The Bible says that the judgment of God was that God gave them over to practicing those things that they were determined to practice. You you remember what I said at the beginning? If you go to the Bible determined to find justification for what you think or what you want to do, you'll probably find it. That's the judgment of God. God is giving these people over to the very things that are are um, against his word and against his character. He says, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That is the, you could say that's close to the, the, the heart of what sin is. Worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator, desiring for me to rule myself rather than letting God rule me. And it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is what the Bible says. And again, God hasn't just told us one thing in some obscure corner of the Bible, but He's kept telling us these things again and again and again and again. And the hardest thing that we'll ever do, whether it's this issue or whatever our sin issue is, whatever our issue is, is to yield ourselves to what God has said. Now, having done a brief survey, let me do an inventory then, in conclusion, an inventory of the lies that Satan tells. Remember I said that God is telling a story, and it's a true story, it's his story, it's the story of history. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and your part in the story, your part in the story has a beginning, a middle, and an end too. God is told ahead of time what he is doing in the lives of those whom he calls to himself. In fact, he tells you how the story went back way before the foundations of the world. And we're all scratching our heads and saying, wow, how did that happen? And he also tells us where our story, our personal story will end in the ages to come. And we're like, yes, why can't I get there now? And so here we are in the middle of our story. And the Lord has told us what it will be. And, and, but for every story that God tells that's true, Satan tells a false narrative. So I want to look at those lies that Satan tells. The Lord, and, and by the way, his lies, here's, here's the one thing about the lies of the devil, right? The devil's lies aren't whoppers in the sense that they're obvious. <laughs> it's not like you go, oh, how could anybody ever believe that? No, Satan's lies seem to make sense to a lot of people, right? In fact, sometimes they look at what God says and they say, I just don't, I don't get that. Why did God say that? 
How come that is so? That doesn't feel right. Well, Satan's good at telling lies that are subtle, right? Didn't the Bible say in the very beginning he's, he was the most subtle of all the creatures that roamed the earth? So here is here are the lies of Satan about sexuality and love and marriage. And ultimately, deeper, there lies about self and sin and salvation. These lies cover every aspect of God's story. They cover lies about creation, lies about the fall, lies about redemption, and lies about the ultimate restoration of the world. That's the big story, right? We're all, I love the big story of the Bible, don't you? Satan lies about it all. How does he do that? Well, he lies to unbelievers, and unbelievers swallow those lies completely. And he also lies to believers. And if he can get you to subtly fall into thinking his way, then, then he's, he's, uh, he believes he's got a victory. Here are four lies that people believe about same-sex attraction. Four lies that Satan tells. The first lie is about creation. And it is that same-sex attracted people are somehow fundamentally different from all other people. Unbelievers buy into this lie in believing that certain human beings have a fundamentally different orientation than other human beings. There are two fundamentally different types of people, the devil says. There are those who are gay or, you know, you name it, lesbian, transgender. And there are those who are straight. And it's just, um, it, it, there, are, there, there, there are people who are this way and there are people who are that way. The Bible truth is that all people are created in the what? Image of God. In fact, even after the fall has marred the image of God in humanity, Genesis chapter 9, the Lord still reasons on the basis of our being made in His image when He says, you shall not kill others because they are made in the image of God. And in the image of God, what does that mean? <laughs> well, one of the things that it means, most certainly, is that those people were made male and female. God created them, and He put them together, one man and one woman from the very beginning. Satan's lie is that there are two fundamentally different kinds of people. And, and for Christians, you know, we should fight this lie by reaching out with love and grace to those who are tempted to, um, to live out a homosexual uh, lifestyle or feeling. For those who are tempted in that way, we ought to have great compassion because those people are made in the what? In the image of God. For those who are tempted by same-sex attractions... This should remind you that God didn't make you gay. He didn't create you gay. He created you human. He created you in His own image. 
And that brings us to the fall, secondly. Because Satan tells lies about the fall. The fall is the second great epic of the whole story of the Bible. It's the saddest part. It's the hardest part um, in many ways. But it's an essential part of the story of understanding why the world is the way it is. Adam and Eve created in the image of God who nevertheless fell from that state of innocence and entered into sinfulness. And now every human being who springs from them is brought into the world sinful, um, cursed, and bent to do evil in our very nature. Now, unbelievers look at this doctrine of the Bible, and they want to minimize it. They want to deny human fallenness, right? What is, what is the world, what is the mantra of the world? People are basically good, right? When very little else is culturally unacceptable, it is the height of cultural arrogance to say that homosexuality or any other sin is an expression of fallenness, of brokenness of rebellion against God. The Bible teaches that God made all men in His image, but that image is twisted and perverted, and homosexuality is one manifestation of that fallenness from what it means to be fully human. And to be fully human means to be made for the glory of God and communion with God in pure joy for all eternity. But our fallenness devolves us from that, from that oneness of that male-female marriage relationship. Humanity needs that, but humanity has fallen. Now, in terms of believers thinking about the fall, believers sometimes overemphasize the sin of homosexuality. And by contrast, unwittingly perhaps minimize the corruption of other more acceptable sins in our circles. You know, it's always easier. A lot of people have OPS syndrome. You know what that is? Other people's sins. I see other people's sins, but I don't see my own. And sometimes believers have looked at a particular sin, be it whatever, in this case homosexuality, as if it is somehow um, a... A, a real sin where my sins are not much sins. Romans chapter 1, remember that God says He gave them over not only to homosexuality, but notice what He gave them over to, envy, gossip, disobedient to parents. All of this is displeasing to God and is an element of the judgment of God, right? So I will say this, that Christians ought to be careful about lifting this sin up as if it's the one big, ugly, wicked sin. And, and all of ours are, are not so bad. The Bible truth is that not every sin is the same. Sin does have different ramifications, and some have great and devastating ramifications. But the truth is that any sin is enough to send a man to hell. And further, through the fall, we have all received an an inherently corrupt nature. So, somebody says, well, homosexuality is a choice. Is that true? It is, (laughs) I'm going to have to say it this way, 
is partly true. Because sometimes those same people say, who say homosexuality is a choice, they look at themselves and they say, but I can't help being angry. It's just the way I am. I'm, I'm, I'm part Irish, you know, or whatever it is, right? So we, we look at ourselves with a different lens. The Bible truth is that every sin involves an element of choice. We act on our evil desires or by grace, we put our evil desires to death, right? At the same time, we recognize that we sin because we are sinners, that we are by nature, we are fallen in Adam. So here's the big lie with regard to the fall. The lie is that what is so much a part of a person's nature cannot possibly be an expression of fallenness, brokenness, sin, and rebellion. It's just who I am. You're making me deny a fundamental part of who I am. And the answer is, yeah. Because part of who I am, me in the flesh, just natural me, is broken, fallen, rebellious against God. I ought to be against myself. Every Christian is against himself, that is, his old self. Right. So when a same-sex attracted person says, you know, I, I, I was born this way, there's an element of truth there, right? <laughs> there's, an, there's an element of truth. We all ought to say, I was born that way, whatever that way is. It may not be that our propensity is to fall into this temptation, but our propensity is to fall into some temptation. We were born that way. And each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Literally, his, the Greek word is idios, from where we get our word, you know, the part of our word for our word, idiosyncrasy. Our own idiosyncratic lusts. And yours may not be mine, but the Bible truth is that every one of us is fallen. And our fallenness must be overcome. I've got to hasten. Um, <laughs> number three, redemption. Number three, redemption. Redemption is God's granting of fallen people a new identity in Christ. That that person, if he is by grace united to Jesus Christ, you know what? He's no more a sinner. That's the glory of being in Christ. You're not a sinner anymore. What are you? You're a Christian. I'm a Christian because I act a certain way. No, you're a Christian because you're united to Jesus. You're united to Christ. That's what makes you a Christian. It's God's grace that unites you to Christ so that your identity is wrapped up in Him. Satan's lie is this, and it's a lie told to unbelievers and sometimes to believers too. Homosexuality, or for that matter, any other sin, can be a defining characteristic of a Christian. This is the way that we get people saying, I'm a, quote, gay Christian. I'm a Christian but I'm also characterized by this element. The Bible calls it a sin. That's a lie. So no Christian should say, I'm a gay Christian, or should say, I'm a lying Christian, or I'm a thieving Christian, <laughs> right? Or I'm a lusting Christian. That's just who I am. Now, all of us deny a fundamental part of who we are in our old self, repudiate that, because our identity is wrapped up in Christ. I'm a Christian. Christ is all. Here's the passage. 
And just go quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at it again. It's right in front of you. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he names all of these sins, including sexual homosexuality, thievery, greed, and so forth, all of that. This was your identity. Verse 11, look at this. Such were some of you. Notice he didn't say, some of you used to steal, some of you used to... Um, get drunk. Some of you used to swindle. He says, you used to be a drunkard. You used to be a swindler. You used to be greedy. That was your identity. You were a sinner. Your whole nature was sin. Such were some of you, but, verse 11, are you with me? But you were washed. You were sanctified. This is past tense. This is done. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now your identity is shifted from the sin that characterized you to your union with Christ. That's your identity now. So no Christian should ever say, I'm a blank Christian and fill in the blank with anything that is against God. Every Christian should say, I am a Christian. Now I struggle sometimes with same-sex attraction. I struggle sometimes with Um, opposite sex sex attraction outside of my marriage. I struggle sometimes with lying. I struggle sometimes with this, that. You fill in the blank. Every every Christian's there to some degree. But no Christian should identify with his or her sin. That's a lie. It's two very different things to say, on the one hand, I experience these temptations these thoughts, these feelings, these attractions that I know are wrong. And by the grace of God, that's not who I am, who I want to be. And on the other hand, to say, I am, I am. Once you say am, then then you've bought into the lie. I am gay, lesbian, queer, whatever it is. Uh, To the last one. Number four, the last lie is with regard to the restoration. What is God's story? Sin, fall, redemption in Christ Jesus. You're identified with Christ. You, are, you have the righteousness of Christ, but it's not done yet. Because here's where you are. You're on the path to the full realization of the righteousness of Christ in the restoration, in the end, in the consummation, the outworking of Christ in us. He who is the exact image of God is in the process of restoring the image of God in those who are united to himself. And sometimes that restoration is long and slow and painful, but it is certain. The lie then is this, that since homosexuality is is a defining characteristic. You see, that first part of the sentence is already bought into the previous lie. Okay, but if that if you bank if you believe the third lie, then the, the fourth lie builds on it. Since homosexuality is a defining characteristic of my life, then I can never change because it is a defining part of me. It's who I am. What does the Bible say? God is all about change, right? God is about changing every one of us from where we are into what we will be, and that changes is progressive, but it is, it is certain. And that's a great hope. Look at again verse 11. Look at again at verse 11 in your text. Such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your positional identity. And look at the end of the verse. You were washed, justified, sanctified by the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the Holy Spirit of God brought you, united you into Christ in the first place, but the Holy Spirit is also at work in an ongoing way in the life of every one of God's people, Christ's people, to form Christ in them. I'm telling you, you have to believe that. That is precisely what separates non-Christians from Christians. They believe God. They believe that God's going to change them. And, and let's just move away from homosexuality for, for a minute and talk about your sin. Your sin. Do you believe, do you believe that God's going to change you? Amen. Do you? Oh. You know, some days I, I wake up and I just, my faith feels very weak on that point because my old self clings so closely. But you know what? I keep going back to this touchstone that what God began, He will not cease until He finishes it. He's going to finish. So to a person who might be struggling, I would say keep believing God. Trust God. Keep struggling. Keep persevering in the faith until at last your faith is made sight. I know, I've talked to Christians who have said, you know, I've, I have felt tempted. Um, I have felt these same-sex attractions and they've been very strong and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. God, take this away. Make me feel differently. God, change me. And they've borne testimony to the pain and the, the anxiety of soul that they've felt. That it seems like God's not doing it. God's not doing it. God's not doing it. And the world comes to them right at that moment and says, God's not doing it and He's not going to do it. You are who you are. And that's, you just need to accept it. You, you'll be happier if you accept it and everybody else accepts it. I want to tell you what Christian in here hasn't prayed exactly that way about whatever sin that you're struggling with, right? That's everybody. There's no unique thing. Don't think you're unusual in that. God, deliver me from this. We pray that our whole life. And praise God, we seek deliverance. We seek growth. And sometimes we see it dramatically. And sometimes we see it incrementally. But the key is you stay a believer. You keep believing that God's going to do it. Well, Satan wants to lie to us about every aspect of God's great story, but God has a plan. And the Bible says, I'm sorry, that we sing this hymn, one day we shall be where we would be, then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now, nor could be, soon shall be our own, that is to say, complete conformity to the image of Christ. But we're on the path now. God's going to do uh, what He's committed Himself to do. Believe Him, believe Him, trust Him. Keep fighting. And trust yourself to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please grant faith to those who hear today encouragements for our, for our hearts, and a perseverance in our faith, we ask. In Christ Jesus, amen.
as the pianist plays a verse of a song. Continue to pray. Give your heart to the Lord. Tell Him you trust Him. Tell Him you're going to believe what He said. Ask Him for grace. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed here in just a moment. I know we've already gone over, and I think so. Let's we'll start the afternoon service about ten minutes late. Okay, I think it'll still go short enough to fit in the time, probably even a little less. We're good. Don't hold me to it, but I, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> pretty sure. I really am. I, um, but let me say one last thing. So if so, if you're a parent here. Um, maybe you felt like this kind of temptation wasn't, or maybe it was, strong for you. And for a lot of parents, maybe it wasn't. But it's going to be much more widespread for your children. And, and this is, of course you know that, you know that. But I want to remind you of the importance to, of talking with your children about God's view of gender, marriage, sexuality, and uh, continuing to do that all the time because the world is going to feed them. These lies come in every package you can imagine. It comes in movie form, book form, friend form. You breathe it in the air form almost, I mean, in the culture, right? So it it is is an, an agenda uh, from the and it's not just that. Of course, he's got his agenda to push every sinful perversion that comes out of our all of our hearts. Right? This is his. This is his. Uh, the one that takes the moment uh, right now. So, so be aware of that. And and if you're if you yourself struggle with this, um, you know God is good. And if you'll if you'll humble yourself before the Lord, you know what there is for you. Only mercy. Only grace. And maybe, uh, maybe a young person who feels they're struggling with this, um, your parents will still love you. Your church, your pastor will love you. Um, if you will think um, rightly about these things, then God will do continue to do a work in your heart. So run to Christ, fight, pray, run to the church, run to the pastor, run to the word, run to prayer, run to godly friends. Seek the Lord.